miles over and three miles down. A history of mining, miners and their families in Castlecomer, County Kilkenny. Hello and welcome to Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down, which tells the rich history and heritage of the Castlecomer mines. In this series, we'll hear the history of the mines and mining in the Castlecomer area of Kilkenny from prehistory to 1969 when the mines closed, ending centuries of iron and coal mining in the area and the surrounding Leinster coalfield. In this programme, we go overground to hear about the lives of the miners and their families. We'll get a sense of how they spent their time and hear the vital role that women played in the community. One thing that was noticeable was that the miners didn't talk openly about their work. Seamus Walsh has written on the subject and has a possible explanation. No, they didn't talk about it because they, they thought the, the mine was not never going to close down. It's like the, the, the man coming home from uh, fighting a war. He, did, he never spoke about it either. But the miners, no, no, they never, never thought to see the day when the mine was going to close down. They didn't think their jobs were under threat, even though there was half of the gate was closed at the time. As would have been typical of the time, the miners would have stopped off at the local pubs on their way home from work. Larry Power, a former miner, gives us a sense of the culture back then and the usual topics of conversation. It was the culture, really. It went along with the nature of the work. Because you had close-knit communities. Lads knew each other. They knew what they had. They knew what they were eating. They knew, you know. And so then they'd, they'd, they'd meet up together in the local pubs and some of them, of course, would say a, a, a drink proper and go home, but then you had a certain percentage you'd know when to go home. <laughs> you know, so that, that, all, that was all in Berlin. When you were finished work, you wanted to stay away from it. You know, you, you didn't make a topic out of it, really. At that time, they were very involved. Of course, this county here, Horland, of course, was the main topic. There was football and there was... Uh, any sports that were going at the time. Two people I've met have memories from the miners in their family pubs. Frankie Mealy would have heard the miners speak about their own working days, which he christened Pit Talk. There was a, 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 a thing called Pit Talk. You may have, may have heard of that expression. And a lot of people wouldn't know what they were talking about because uh, it was just, it was such a, a life of their own that, that they, they, they actually had their own language, as it were, you know? And people who didn't work, for instance, ordinary farmers now who had never been down in the mine, they wouldn't know what the guys were talking about in the pub because uh, it, was, it, was, it was their own language, as it were. Sean Mansfield's family had a pub in the local area and sport was a constant topic. Well, yes, they, they you know, they're, 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 when they'd be sort of talking shop on the, on the, the, about the coal and all the rest, but then there was, the, there was always the, the talk about their, their, their interests. Uh, you know, they, they, I suppose down through the years in Kilkenny particularly, the, the, the state of Kilkenny hurling and the All-Irelands were, were sort of, uh, the All-Ireland would be a focal point. They talked about Kilkenny hurling and the great hurlers and so on. But in the immediate locality, they talked a lot about football because a strange thing, and it's only my take on it, but in the area of um, Deer Park, uh, the other mines like um, Rossmore and Holly Park, 
they were out in the other, in Leash. Now, there was a natural enmity uh, between Leash and Kilkenny, and it spilled over, I think, into the football. So uh, there were very good football teams in Cretty Yard, and as you'd go around, you know, the Carlow border, and the rail yard then developed from from an older team called Clonine, but this rail yard uh, sort of club it it was had a remarkable run of success, and they were mainly miners, very few farmers. Again, there were the part time farmers' sons who would have played, but they were mainly miners. And they had a, a remarkable run of success at both senior and uh, uh, underage level. And it was a sort of a rite of passage, maybe, for young lads to make it as a senior football. Uh, you know, a footballer in, in, in rail yard was a cachet, you know. Still is today. There's a senior team there and uh, they're very respectable. The miners also used words in their daily lives from their working life, which became part of the local figures of speech. There's quite a lot of the the language of the miners became part of the the, the conversation. Uh, for example, uh, a word that was used um, in the social scene uh, when they took out the coal. They had to replace it. You see, coal was taken out and the, and the stones and the debris that resulted was packed up against the roof to ensure that there was a continuous uh, uh, run of safety. So they had great skill. So they packed up this uh, sort of um, stones and what was left behind when the, when the seams of coal were taken out. And it was knowing as a gobbing the road and then the term gobbing became gobbed and gobbed in their parlance meant full of it then pertained to the pubs and suddenly somebody would say was was there many in carols last night and they'd say it was gobbed Nancy Gagan was the daughter of a miner and has many memories of her father and has written about them although like most of the miners, her father rarely spoke directly about his work. Nancy spoke to me about the things she heard and understood. I knew, like, not so early in the years, but I realised, like, I would kind of overhear things with the men sometimes, but it wouldn't be... All of that, very, very dangerous things happened. I remember my father coming home and he had, you know, he had his dinner, he never sat down and he had very wiry hair and he had quite high hair and he said to my mum Jane will you have a look at that there and there there was this congealed blood in in the in the on the on his head and very deep and my mother let a roar and said oh you should have had stitches in that what why did you not go and have stitches you know and uh, I said it's all right and she tried to but she was very upset about it and he said he'd go the next day but he'd he didn't go the next day because that particular evening he he got up after having his dinner, got himself together and said nothing and put on the coat again and said, I have to go back. She said, you're not going back. I have to go back. I have to. If I don't go back, there's a flood in number nine. 
I'm not, I can't quite remember. There was always some, some numbers, six, seven, eight or whatever. I wouldn't have known what they were, but there were obviously areas where there was floods. But, um, and she followed him out on his bicycle out through the yard. And he said, uh, I have to go back. I have to do that work tonight, he said, because if I don't get that water sorted, uh, the men, when they come on the next shift, will not get paid. And he stayed all night. And that would be one of many kind of little things that would happen, you know. While the fathers didn't always speak about their lives, on occasion the families found out about things happening at the mines. Nancy Byrne-Gagan explained to me about one such event. My father got this from Captain Pryor Ranisford. Dear Paddy, I would like to write to you a personal note to say how sorry I am that this had to happen and to thank you for all you have done in the, in the past. If I may say so, you always struck me as a man who refused to, get, to be got down by any difficulty and you had, I, I, that you have had. Uh, Captain Pryor, he signed it at the end. That was... That was on the 24th of the 1st, 1969. That's the mining office hidden paper. So he thought that was a great honour to get that. (laughs) Anna Creedon also spoke to me about another incident which she heard from her mother. She also told me about an accident that happened to her father. Like you remember him, he was coming in and out of work and there was times he could have to do 12 hours at a time. Because eventually he became a fireman, so he had to be there. Oh, did you know what job he had? You know what no, did? I didn't. Not until Mammy told us the story about Wanisford coming to the door, or Captain Wanisford. Daddy, it seems, had been on a double shift. And he'd come home, gone to bed, and there was a knock on the door, and Mammy went out and opened it. And there was a man standing there, which she hadn't a clue who he was. Probably never seen him. <laughs> and he said he was looking for John. And Mammy said, well, he's gone to bed. He's after being out on a double shift. And he said, well, he said, I know that, he said. I said, I'm Captain Wanisford, he said. And I want to thank John for saving the pit last night. Or the mine. So obviously it was something to do with flooding. I don't. Daddy never spoke about that. And I'm sure that not one man in the mines would have heard that story because he wouldn't talk about it. You know, I don't think Daddy would come home and discuss what happened, except it was something like the morning he came in with the top off his finger and he hiding it behind his back so that Mammy wouldn't see it because she was expecting my sister, my last sister. And he didn't want to let her know. The finger was all bandaged. Well, he had to tell her eventually what happened to it. But he didn't want to scare her, I think, when... Whatever. The loved ones lived with the knowledge that things could go wrong. Chrissy Walsh and Angela Barngagan spoke to me about that anxiety and one event that has stayed with them. You just took it for granted, I suppose. But if we knew that it was a dangerous place to work because if we heard the siren... The park, siren, the heart to be out here, to know who is it, you know. And you wouldn't know because you wouldn't know until somebody had come back in, you know. You'd be waiting for ages. It wasn't like there was no phones or anything. If, if there was an accident, that they'd stay on. So you didn't know who it was, you know. 
and you'd see your father coming through the door and you'd say, oh, thank God, he's home safe. And if he didn't come home then, you'd know there was something wrong, maybe something happened. There could be, um, what do you call it, Chrissy? A shooting. A shooting, yeah. And that you'd be delayed, you could be in it for a long time. And then you'd still have to go back the next day at the same time again. And if there was an accident and the siren went off, and we'd be able to hear the siren in Comer now, here in Castle Comer, because... At, you know, there wouldn't be much traffic at that time. So I remember the, the night um, my, Mick Dow died and a stone fell on him. My father was working with him that time. He said they act of contrition into his ear. He was the last man with him. He, he was killed instantly, I think. Mary Brown and Campion spoke to me about her father and what little they really knew about his working life. Um, I can remember Daddy going out in the night. Someone had come for him. Uh, for the shutting, and I don't know actually what he worked at in the mines, but um, I remember the clothes, and he was often wet when he came home, and uh, we'd only look at him in amazement and ask no questions, and we didn't hear too much about it either. Um, he got sick down in the mines, um, a rat uh, piddled on, his, on the cork of the bottle of tea, that the drink, cold tea, and he was very sick and we didn't know what was wrong with him and we had to get an ambulance one night for him and he was taken into hospital and he was uh, he got a jaundice and everything out of that and um, I remember going in to see him but um, I can't remember anything else about it now he was very ill May Dormer is another local woman and writer who has special memories of her father's morning ritual she recited a poem to me about it I wakened to the sound of you pottering in the kitchen, raking the fire and then coughing because the dust hit your lungs. I snuggled into the blankets, almost feeling the cold, frosty air at the sound of you lifting the latch of the back door to take the ashes to the cinder heap. I heard you rinsing the teapot and a slight rattle as you lifted the large brown jug with the blue rim from the dresser. And then the clatter of the spoon hitting the side of the jug as you went through the ritual of stirring sugar and tea, almost forgetting to stop. You never spilt a sup as you poured the milky sweet tea into a large thick glass bottle and tightened the loose cork with paper. Humming, Fate of Our Fathers, you wrapped it in newspaper, stuffed it into your top coat pocket for the final stage of its journey. You drank it cold in a tunnel of darkness. While not from a mining family, Casencoma resident Anna Mae Tracy spoke to me about her life and had one vivid memory of the men who passed her door. And then they'd be walking home. Then it could be rain and that was winter and summer. But winter time, there was a, a farm, farm down the way there and there was a path across from Clockbridge out to this, the main road, to their road here beyond and um, they call it the Black Path because it was, they were coming home and it was raining. The water and the column water would run down and to be on the path. 
Jeg ser, for mørkte pæt. Skulle det blive blæk, der fæsses væk. En jæs, og jeg tænker jeg det. Hvor er du kommet til weekend, special Sunday, der jeg would not know the world in the mines. They were so beautifully dressed. Lovely white shorts, lovely suits. The beat just lovely. Peter Keady spoke to me about the combination of hard work and good money back in the mines. In the Deer Park, about 1963, I'd say it was. I was calling the face. I was working with a man by the name of Timmy Wilson, and the wages was massive. Very, very good wages. Hard work. We didn't we only worked about seven hours in the day, but my God, it was very, very hard work, but the wages was colossal in it. And former workmate Timmy Wilson spoke to me about the facilities available to the miners overground. They had the, built the, the bathhouse and they had, they had the, the canteen as well. They could have get breakfast or anything, but they liking it. All up, up to the time at lowest in 69. But it was great for for the yard itself because there was a lot of carmine, a lot of drawn coal from it, a lot of lorries, and they used to get their breakfast there in the canteen or get their dinner in the canteen. That was one thing about it. We've heard about the bats at the Deer Park and there was plenty of banter there, as Seamus Walsh explains. It looks so peaceful now and you wouldn't believe that 600 men and boys went down there every single day of the week. It was a hive of activity. You could be here at 10 to 8 in the morning and there wouldn't be a store in the yard. A few older miners would be here at half seven ready to go down. Then all the lads would come in at the one time because it was after 8 o'clock and you clocked in. You'd be cut a quarter of an hour, a half an hour, and that was a terrible thing to happen yeah. But in the bats in the morning, there used to be a great crack with all the lads. And uh, I remember the first morning I started, and there was every size of a man, and he'd run up and down, and the towels around. I was going around with a towel tied around me. Yeah, I was 14 years of age, and um, all the lads were walking around there, and you think you were in a nudist camp. They wasn't to bother them. So after about a week, I'd run up and down and be in the nude there. It wouldn't cost you a thought. You'd go in under the sprays and watch yourself and come out. You know, it's just, a, it's just fairly rough now, I'll have to say. <laughs> and there was a few prime buyers in it. And that's them they didn't gone. They'd never be the likes of them again, I don't It's true. So there was, Monty Rowe had a good football team and Comer had a fairly good out team and there was fierce rivalry between the two of them. And when they'd meet, and it used to be holy war. Me lads boxing and nice miners. And the next morning they went to work and they had to, that was all I forgot about the camaraderie had set in because they knew right well they had to look after one another because danger was lurking all around yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Comfort was, went into to be a bit of a boxer and he came in this Monday and he had a black eye and you know, the whole place was uproaring laughter you know but Willie Dowd was the younger man at the time and he was a kick footballer he was a great footballer kick football for Kilkenny so to laugh it after watching one another, watching washing themselves in the bats and Jimmy said to do, I'd wash your back because you couldn't wash your back yourself so uh, he, he says to Willie Dowd shake the hand the hand that shook the world you know the boxer and here says Willie hand him a big sponge wash the back at the back at the county full back <laughs> Mick Brennan Rose spoke to me about what the miners got up to when they had spare time sport was a part of things but so also was music you were in the evening shift you never get down you know but then on the day you go down and 
Jo, besökhållningen Åsendorad där vi eh, går till matches med alla. Jo, hon blir, det var pops av när vi sönder ner till Indien och vi, jag tänkte 62 när pops av när vi sönder under. Det var pictures, vi gick till Kenny and the Bikes, the pictures of me. Hon har men Robin Archer där. Ja, det var censet in the hall, men jag tror. There was one band they used to call it the Bad Kidney Band, because the, they, have, they all have to go for the surgery. So when some, someone asked them, well, actually, the old, the old kidneys is not great for them, you know, they'd be going off to drink a bottle or something. You, you wouldn't be out late at night now because you'd be up early in the morning. John Coffey was a publican in the area and is a fine photographer who's captured many images of the miners over the years. He has a strong memory of the Sunday rituals and the banter in his bar. On the Saturday morning, or Sunday morning, here in the village, you'd have... The lads would be spotless. Well, they'd be, you know, the, the, these were men who weren't working, but they just got into a habit of when they were in the pits, Sunday was their day, you know, sparkling clean shirt, the hair done, a new cap, you know, the, the good suit, polished shoes, go to mass and then come back, come into the pubs, various pubs around and, and always went home for the dinner. You know, a lot of them, majority of them, men, it was a ritual. Enjoyed a little get together here or in any of the pubs, not just picking here, but just same thing happened in Castlecomer and Morning Row. Um, and then the two o'clock closing and it was a great idea actually the holy hour which wasn't a holy hour it was a holy two hours really but um, it was a good idea because they would have had their you know they would have had their quota really you know early morning drinking is a thing of the past anyway because the pubs are open all day you know but at that time, um, and then they'd go home and possibly come out again that night, you know. But that little meeting after Mass was, and used to assemble across the road there. And I have various photographs of, of these men, and they'd be just chatting about politics of the day as another thing. One perhaps surprising feature of life in and around Castlecomer was the links back to Yorkshire in England. Many miners came to the local area and settled when the mines opened up and took some of their ways and cures with them. Seamus O'Connor explained this to me. When they came, they had the skill to, under subcontract, to develop mines. They knew how. Um, the Irish people who came in then to populate Morgan only came later. So in effect, the Yorkshire people were here before the most of the Irish. That's why you'll see so many names sort of called like the Rhines, the Nolans, the Walches. Wouldn't have been native 300 years ago. They obviously came in from Tipperary, Wexford, Carlo. You know, they came in to work here. Um, when the people came from Yorkshire, they had to be given some land in case any of the subcontract mining ventures they took on failed. So they were generally given lands at the very top of the plateau, ranging from Rossmore right down to Mukhali. You'll see names across there still, the Shirley's, the Minchins, um, Blacks, Whites, Marshes. All these people 
in coming to an, an uncivilized area back 300 years ago. They were brought, brought with them cures, you know, um, medical cures from England, would have been the, the name, herbal cures and all that, herbal medicine, because that was their, you know, safeguard coming to a, a new country. And it's amazing that those herbal cures still exist among many of those families who were up there. But those families integrated very well into the colliery over those years and be a very big population of you know, people who come from that tradition here. As would have been the case in the society of the time, women played a mainly domestic role in the life of the area. Maura Downey, a local historian, explains. Before the pit head baths were provided in the late 1930s, the women were responsible responsible for having hot water available for the men to wash after a day's work, washing and drying of working clothes, having breakfast and lunches ready in the early morning and hot dinners in the evening. Water would have to be drawn from a communal pump, heated over an open fire where the working clothes would have to be dried and ready for the morning. And then there's a, a, a quotation again from the Montreal publication, Girls were raised to be wives and the miner's wife's status was based on her ability to make do, her demonstrated capacity to make a home. While the women of the mines did not work there, they were the backbone of the families. I spoke to a number of miners' daughters and wives. Theresa Farrell summarised the role of women and the hard work they endured at that time. Oh, for God's sake. But you know, I, I can actually remember my mother going down to the river and washing washing sheets and blankets and because um, and, I'd, I'd have to turn the sheet this way or the blanket this way and she'd be turning it that way to wring it out, you know what I mean? They had no no uh, fancy gadgets to... They, they really did work hard, you know. I'm sure somebody else will be able to tell you more, but, uh, you know, I do find... I, I have great admiration for them when you think about it. All these children and all the rest of it. And, and, and the mothers, they were the children. They stayed at home. And as I said, they worked harder than any woman going to work today. I don't care what job they do. And I do, and I really mean that. I mean, I mean, we had a cement floor in our kitchen. Getting down on your hands and knees to scrub that floor to, and it's spotless, you know what I mean? When you think of all the hard work, I always remember the Vim. The vim would be shook all over the floor and then you'd be scrubbing it with the, with the scrubbing brush down your hands and knees. And then you wonder why you have arthritis and you're looking for cabbage leaves years later. Huh? Isn't it true, though? You know, where, where did, that's where the arthritis came from, didn't it? Because you're down there, this bloody cement floor, cold floor, scrubbing it with a scrubbing brush and, a, and, a, and vim all over the place. And then they'll t- talk to you about chemicals today. How many chemicals did we have down our throat at that time? Oh, for God's sake. One of the jobs that the women were called on to do was washing and the repair of the men's clothes. Angela Byrne-Gagan explained this to me. She used to patch the clothes with Jiffy Techs. You know that Jiffy Techs, it was... She used to, that's the way they used to fit men the clothes. It was great stuff. I don't know whether you can get it now or not, but they used, that used to be a job in itself. Stick. But then we got a washing machine. We bought a washing machine in an auction. We know those washing machines with a ringer on it. So the washing was done on a Monday and the mining clothes was the last thing went in because they'd be the dirtiest, of course. As we've heard, mining could be extremely dangerous. Women often carried an anxiety about their loved ones, as Nancy Gagan explained to me. I remember when I was a child, like, uh, I was the eldest of five at the time, and we used to, in the summertime, when they were on day shift, we would kind of run to meet them coming home from work. And uh, my father, many a time, uh, would not 
be home because he would be back. He would have to wait because of floods in number eight or number nine or whatever. You know, he had, there was always that thing going on. But I do remember once in particular running in and seeing that my Uncle Matt was coming on his own and my father was not there. And he said to me, go home, Alana, and tell your mother your daddy will be late. There's a flood in number nine, things like that. And we waiting for him to come home. And um, my mother would be absolutely livid when he, she wasn't coming home and she'd have the, f- the dinner ready, you know, and everything. And so she'd be given out like hell. And for a long time, I wondered why she was so anxious and always upset when they were late in the mines. You know, she was always very anxious. And it was a couple of years later when I realised that her uncle was killed in the Dewar Park. His name was Dan Leeson. And so I began to understand more than why, because she was, she'd be always telling me, go out there and see your dad coming, you know, and this would go on and I would be annoyed because, I mean, it would be dark, there was no electricity. You wouldn't see a light. I would stand on McGrath's ditch and say, you know, go, stand up in the ditch and you'll, you'll see the light coming down the mountain, which was Woolfield. Then my father, uh, his mother, his mother came from Woolfield. And they never called it Woolfield. They always said going up the mountain and going home to the mountain, like, you know, because that's where she came from. And my father was William O'Neill, and the banter was that she came across Slot Bridge to marry my grandfather, which wouldn't be a good thing with Leash and Kilkenny, you know. <laughs> and so that went on for years. But, um, yes, she loved going home, and I often went home with her in the Aston car just to see her brothers and sisters. Um, yes, um, it, it was a sad time, a good time, and I think we had a wonderful childhood and we have great memories. May Dormer has written extensively about life in the times of the mines, especially in the lives of women who held things together. They managed the budgets and they kept the houses going, sometimes with help from abroad, although most things were kept local. The women did a tremendous job, like, back then, you know, and... I suppose there was there was a great sense of humour as well. Um, I remember when my mother's sisters would come home from America, or her brothers would come from London or wherever. Um, like before they went back, there was always a house party, so there was music and there was song and dance within the, the small houses, you know. But there was a crowd there. You could always say there was a crowd in a small house, couldn't you? But um, yeah, there was. They made their own fun, I suppose, really, you know, and there was great wit, I know the men in particular, there was great wit amongst the men, you know. And I suppose the other side of it around this community was there were such large families that um, so many of them stayed and so many emigrated. Like I always remember my mother writing letters to her sisters in Australia and her sisters in America and her brothers in London. So... Like sitting down and taking the time to write and tell the various little bits and bobs of news from around the area. And then a letter coming back, it would take six weeks that time from from Australia, you know. But the, those things were religiously done. And the Kilkenny People or the Kilkenny Journal or whatever it was at the time, that newspaper was sent to London every week, like. That had to be posted and that was it, like. But... The women thought of things, I suppose, I would always say, like the women, without the women, we wouldn't have a church today. Because it's women 
are the vast majority of who attend church. And um, it was women who put the money in the envelope for the church. It wasn't the men. They might have brought home the money, but the woman budgeted the money and the woman done whatever and she paid everything and paid everybody. But in the home then, the women would have looked after large families um, and I suppose with great skill and on a daily basis, they would have put life on the biblical story, the loaves and the fishes. Resources in those days were very scarce. And these women became dab hands at budgeting, cooking, baking, knitting the jumpers for the kids for school or whatever, sewing, the washing with the bathtub and the scrubbing board, the washboard, ironing with the iron that was heated on the coal fire. And they were also always available to care for the neighbour who might be about to have another baby or for somebody who was sick in the area or when somebody was dying. So their role was continuously supportive in every make, shape and form in community life at that time. Um, I suppose they're... The one thing I always remember about my own mother, and I suppose with a lot of them around here as well, was they always shopped local. So it didn't have to be advertised in those days. Every penny earned was spent in the local economy. So the milk, the eggs, the potatoes and the vegetables were often bought from the local farmers. The meat was purchased from the local butchers. And the weekly shopping then was bought from local shops that had names like Delaney, Cantwell's, Joyce's, Scanlon's, Massford Stores, which was uh, uh, set up, it was a cooperative set up by the coal miners. And um, I suppose they advanced a little bit further afield then when Boogie's buses of Castle Comer came on the road because that took you to Carlow, which was like going to New York, you know. And it took you to Castle Comer as well. Furniture, um, hardware stuff, things like that, were all bought in Castle Comer. The drapery was bought there. So you didn't go into a Dunn stores or whatever and have a choice of what you wanted. You, your mother went in and bought whatever and brought it home and you wore it and that was it. Um, the other side of it, I suppose, was we were lucky in, as a family that my mother had sisters in America. So they went to the trouble every now and again to pack a, a box with clothes belonging to their children and sent them home to us. So that happened at First Communion times, mostly confirmation. So you wore the American style at that stage, <laughs> Do you know. <laughs> it's funny when you look, look back on it, but when you think of the work that the women, again, at the other side of the Atlantic, went to to put clothes in a box and carry it to a post office and post it home to Ireland, like and linked in as immigrant women with the women in their own communities again. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. One feature of mining families was the arrangements with the mine for free coal. Mary Brennan spoke to me about this. Yeah, and we'd get the coal, um, the free coal, and um, Dan Dowd would bring it, just to, uh, who I can remember. And they'd always get two boiled eggs. That was the, the main meal, two boiled eggs when he'd come. And um, then we'd have to shovel it into the 
shed, which we didn't do too much of. Daddy'd have to do that as well. Um, if you had too much and you didn't need it, you'd give it to a neighbour or someone else who needed it. That they were very generous, the miners were. They wouldn't be just thinking of themselves. Castlecomer and the surrounding mining area was a tight-knit community. Chrissy Walsh spoke to me about the generosity of the people living there. there were, the, the community of Castlecomer were extremely generous, and they still are, and all the surrounding areas, morning row, clock, everywhere. The mining community especially, they were just so generous and such a caring community, you know. And um, we'd get the ration of coal every two weeks, I always remember. Lovely, shiny black coal like diamonds, the outside. (laughs) And uh, you'd have to bring two buckets to somebody who didn't work in the mines. You'd have all the neighbours, you might... Um, all the neighbours around that didn't have anybody working in the mines and you give them so much before you brought in the coal at all. Castlecomer was also a rural area and many families depended on the land for food. Nellie Holden spoke to me about one such source. I remember every Sunday morning Daddy and all the, his friends P, um, the Bermacahy and and um, the whole lot of them would appear at our front door and they'd all be going hunting and all the dogs would be yelping at the front door <laughs> at 8 o'clock mass time after that and they'd pack up and they'd go off but as grown up I never remember eating chicken but I remember eating rabbit we had rabbit every Monday, Tuesday, you had rabbit for the dinner, Mammy casserole that she roasted it and she was, Mammy used to skin him, we'd be all looking for the little tail was supposed to be you know, good, anyway that's the way we were Theresa Brennan spoke to me about the pride and camaraderie that her father Tom, known as the chairman, had in his working life. The only thing he used to say was the, his comrades. The camaraderie and the wit and the crack down the mines was something else. And all the lads down the mines would have been part of his family. They were classed as family. And, like, and you could see as each... Maybe if a friend of him would die, of his would die, it was like a brother. They all looked out for one another and it was uh, just like a big family. That was the one thing he did say, always said, that his comrades, they were like family. Yeah, all his friends. Yeah. Willie Joe Mealy has written about life in the mines both above and below ground. He also told me that all the contents of the mines were used and he told me about column bombs. That was, that was, you made column bombs, C-U-L-M-B-U-M-B-S. They all call them bombs and things like that. You made them with your hands and they were dirty, you know. They were smattery stuff and you'd, your hands would be, you could get sore after you're doing a lot of them. There was no gloves, there was no plastic them times. But... They came up with an idea one time that to make a boom maker, uh, a little shooter that you'd, a gadget that you'd stick down in the mud and you'd bring it up. And uh, it's like a pump, a suckage. And the column had come up in it. And then you'd get a little plunger and shove it out. And there you had two little neat bombs or one large one on the ground. Oh, should have got so common and so y- useful that the gentry started using them. You wouldn't hear television before, you know. Right. 
A lot of people didn't go to the bother doing that. They just kept doing it with their hands. Nancy Gagan also spoke to me about her family's experience of column bombs. She's also written about the love-hate relationship involved in the chore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, like, the th- we were the, the three eldest. Uh, I was uh, the eldest. My sister, Mamie, was next and Liam was third. So we were the ones that were capable at that stage of dancing in the column. Right. I have another one like that as well, but um, uh, that was a, a chore in itself now. You know, we all had chores. Yeah, we never had time to be bored because you had, to, I mean, we were bored because we didn't want to be, we wanted to be playing or doing anything, only working the column. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, we had to, the, the trouble with that was uh, there was a lot of work before you actually did that. So we'd have the, the, the mound of, column or coal dust and then you had to get the yellow clay and my brother was the one that would go to get the yellow clay you know and he would dig holes everywhere and our yellow clay in Chatsworth in in our field wasn't good clay so some of it would be kind of very dark and so it had to you know but you had to make do really but it would take longer and longer like to to work it. But I remember where my mother came from up in Turtan, they used to boast about the yellow clay because they had really good yellow clay, do you know. So there was that kind of thing used to go on as well. But um, my brother would dig holes everywhere and it would be bad. I don't know how we didn't get broken legs because of all the holes in the field. But um, he would dig it up and, and when I went into play and he was kind of bossy because he was the only son at the time I have another brother that was years later he was born, but he was kind of bossy and, um, well, we have to do this and we have to do that, you know. But, um, yeah, I have one of that, if you can read that. When I was a child, it drove me wild, that dreaded coal dust mound, piled high upon the ground, waiting for feet to pound. Let's play, I did say hoping it would go away. We can't play, my brother Liam, he did say. We have to work this column today. I'll go and get the yellow clay. Fake the column and fake the clay. It can wait another day, my sister Mamie, she did say. We'll be here all feckin' day. I'll dance no bloody bed this day. We want to play. We leave the last word to Nancy Gagan, who wrote a poem about a memory of her father. He stood on the step, leaning over the half door. The glow of the eye lamp on his face. Bring me a knife, Alana. We stood on the step face to face, his head held high, his arms outstretched. With knife in hand, I scraped wolfiel muck from his clothes, black, sticky column. I watched it fall, bit by bit, now around our feet. Good girl, he said. 
I shovel the wet coal dust onto a bed of column mixed with yellow clay. We shoveled and danced. I made bums and burnt them in our fire. Thanks for listening. In the next programme, we'll talk about the conditions in the mine and their impact on the men, the industrial relations at play, and in particular, the role of the legendary union activist and leader, Nixie Boren. We'll also hear about the fight for compensation for pneumoconiosis, which had such a devastating effect on the men of the mines. Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down is a documentary series presented and produced by Martin Bridgman for KCLR with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.